Hello, I'm Drew Katt, at Choices Director of State Research and Special Projects. Today, I'm in the studio to introduce our listeners to another amazing researcher. I'm here with Dr. Ben Scafidi, Director of the Education Economics Center and Professor of Economics at Kennesaw State University and a Friedman Fellow at EdChoice. Thanks for joining me today, Ben. Thanks, Drew. So, Ben, would you mind introducing yourself a little other than your amazing titles? and telling us a little about what attracted you to issues in K-12 education and educational choice. So I'm Ben Scafferty. I live here in Kennesaw, Georgia. We're outside of Atlanta. So we're in Metro Atlanta. And I've been a Friedman Fellow for many years. I guess I started working with EdChoice around 2005. And the way I heard of the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, your former name, was I was at an academic conference and I had just given a talk and I came to the back and I saw this guy standing next to me who had a name tag and it said, Robert Enlow, Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. And I said, hey, I'd like educational choice. And he goes, me too. And so we just started talking. And then a few years later, I started working with Ed Choice. That was pretty neat. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't realize it's been, what, 16 years now? Yeah. But that conversation with Robert was probably around 2001, and he was different then. He had hair that was not combed in any way, and he was not dressed like he was going to be at an academic conference. He was dressed much more casual, but he had the name tag, so he was ready to go. That history and that connection is awesome. That's a great story. So you said that when you met Robert, you were already interested in educational choice. What really got you interested in educational choice in the first place? That's a good question. When I was a junior in college, so this would have been 1988 or 1989, I was taking intermediate microeconomics. It's a class that all economics majors need to take. And a classic example in there is school vouchers. They draw a graph and they say, this is the public education system, and this is how it would change if we had school vouchers. It would give people more choices. And when I heard the idea, I was like, that makes perfect sense. Why don't we do that? And then shortly after that, so this was the late 1980s, two movies came out. One was called Lean on Me with Morgan Freeman. And one was called Stand and Deliver with Edward James Olmos. And both were based on true stories. The Lean on Me movie was about an inner city high school in New Jersey that was going to be taken over by the state for low performance. So they brought in this guy, Joe Clark, to be the principal. And he was a radical in terms of the public education system. And he said, this school is not going to fail on my watch. And he took very extreme measures. And the school improved. And so the state didn't take it over because student achievement had improved. And in real life, a few years later, Joe Clark was pushed out, even though he had taken this school that everyone had given up on, and he made it good. The students loved him, parents loved him, but they pushed him out because he was an entrepreneur. He was someone who was willing to do things differently. And the same thing happened in the other film. The other film was called Stand and Deliver, and it was about this teacher in inner city Los Angeles, Jaime Escalante. I believe he had been an engineer and he went to the high school to teach mathematics. And when you're new teaching at a school, you kind of teach at the lowest level. 
And so he was teaching like freshmen and he was a really good math teacher because, you know, he used it in his day-to-day -day job, you know, being an alternative teacher, being an engineer in his background. And so he moved up with that cohort of students. So he taught them when they were sophomores and they were juniors. And when they were seniors, he wanted to teach them calculus, but the public school did not want him teaching calculus. They're like, these kids can't handle it. So in the other film, the students were predominantly African-American. In this film, in Los Angeles, they were predominantly Latino. And he was like, they can do calculus. I'm Latino. I can do calculus. They can do calculus. You know? And he said, they're ready. I've been teaching them three years. So he had to fight with the school district to get to be able to teach students calculus that he, the teacher, he, an engineer, thought they could handle. So they let him teach calculus after a big fight. And then the students took the AP exams in calculus and almost all of them got fours and fives, which is the highest scores of five. Generally speaking, most colleges will give you college credit if you get a four. So almost all his inner city students got college credit. Well, the college board or whoever administered the exam didn't believe the results because, oh, that high school shouldn't have high achievement. And so he was forced to administer the test again, but this time they had like college board monitors in there watching and they all got the same scores. And so it turned out it was true. There wasn't any cheating going on. So the film of course ended with all these kids getting college scholarships and things and they all learned calculus and everyone's happy. But again, a few years later, the public school district pushed Jaime Escalante out as well. So again, here you have these two great educators who are doing things differently, who have very high standards for students, and the public school system said, we don't want you. And they were doing it with the most disadvantaged students. And so I thought back after I saw those films about a year or two after I had taken that microeconomics course, when I first heard about school vouchers that made so much sense to me in theory. But then when I watched those movies, I was like, we have got to do this. And I've been a staunch choice advocate ever since. Yeah, so how through your illustrious career have you advocated for school choice? So the listeners who don't know, you know, your foray into politics, if you will. Sure. So I was teaching at the time at Georgia State University in downtown Atlanta. And I started there in fall 98. And so about February 99, the dean came around and grabbed three of us who were all working on education policy. And the dean said, the new governor, Governor Roy Barnes, a Democrat in Georgia, is going to have a big education reform commission, and we want you to staff it. That's an unusual request for a tenure-track faculty member right, who needs to, you know, publish or you can't keep your job, right? You need to do academic publishing in academic journals. Well, all three of us really liked education policy, so we were all excited. So Governor Barnes was putting in accountability before No Child Left Behind. And so I went to the first meeting and I was on the staff of the accountability committee for his reform commission. And I get to the first meeting and they're like, oh, this is Professor Scaffody. I didn't know a soul in the room. And they said, he's going to write our report. And I was like, what? <laughs> so we had all these meetings and heard all this testimony and talked to the commissioners. And so that summer, I was actually in upstate New York 
sitting at a public library outside using their juice with my laptop to plug it in, no internet. And so I wrote that report sitting there in upstate New York while we were on our family vacation. This was crazy busy time. Because again, I'm trying to publish to get tenure so I can keep my job. And then I had to do this thing for the governor and it was on this quick timeline. So the way I set it up in the report is, yeah, you could have centralized accountability by giving students tests, monitoring their test scores, looking at improvements, and then you know having the state come in and do some intervention if the schools weren't doing well, and maybe giving some reward if the school is doing well. I said, but another way to do it is what I call decentralized accountability. And that is you could give the money we spend on public schools and instead divide it up among parents and give them their pro rata share and let them decide if the public school is the best school for their student. And if it's not, they can use that money to go to a public school in another district or to go to a private school. And so I was saying that would be a better way to do accountability because the parents could do it directly. Because even though that school might be good, it might not be good for your child. Or that school might be bad in some respect, but it might actually be good for your child in some respect. So the idea was let the parents hold them accountable, or you could have you know the state hold them accountable through these tests and things and these sanctions. And I think Governor Barnes was open to choice, but he was a Democrat and his party was not. And so they went kind of the no child left behind style route, but they put in the tests and they put in the sanctions again, a couple of years before no child left behind. But that's how it started for me. I feel like this is the perfect opportunity, dear listeners, to plug Mike McShane's new report, The Accountability Myth. Check it out at edchoice.org. That is a great report. I totally second that recommendation. So it's fascinating to think about that though, especially since now, your area of expertise, at least in terms of the school choice world, is so much on the fiscal side to think about how you wrote this report focused on accountability. Yes. I had done some school finance work in my academic research. And then after Governor Barnes was governor, there was a new governor, Sonny Perdue. And he asked me to work for him full time as his education advisor. And in that job, I was working on the state education budgets very intensely. <laughs> so I worked with the education budget staff basically weekly for those three years. So I took a pause from academia for three years and worked for Governor Purdue full time. And that's where I really saw how education policy is implemented and when the rubber hits the road, how it really works or doesn't work. And I also learned a ton about education finance, because education finance, I think by design, is super complicated. It doesn't need to be super complicated, but a lot of interest groups want it complicated so that the money's earmarked for their occupation and it's earmarked for their political power. And so parents and legislators and others, the media researchers, don't know what's going on. So I learned a lot of stuff I would never have learned if I hadn't worked for those two governors. Again, especially about school finance, but also about policies that sound good. Do they really work? <laughs> Do they really work as intended? 
school finance and obfuscation. That's fascinating. <laughs> so I'm not sure if I've ever asked you this. What got you started on your staffing surge reports where you really looked at the difference between the percent increase in students versus the percent increase in teachers and all other stuff? Yeah, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that. I was talking to some public school teacher friends and they were complaining about their school district hiring more people outside the classroom. And I looked it up and it turned out they were true. And then I looked it up for the whole state of Georgia and it turned out that was true. Then I looked it up for the whole country and it turned out that was true. And so I pitched your colleague, Paul DePerna. He was the head of research at EdChoice. And I said, look at what I'm finding. Do you think I can write this as a report? And he was like, oh yeah, this is awesome. And so we wrote the report and then we needed a name for it, this growth and employment, because this had been going on, I showed since at least 1950, because the data only goes back to 1950. But since 1950, public schools have been hiring teachers and especially non-teachers, all other staff, at rates significantly higher than their growth rate in students. And so, for example, since 1950, the number of public school students has basically doubled. The number of teachers has gone up about three and a half times, but the number of non-teachers has gone up by a factor of like eight, you know, eight and a half probably by now. So I needed a name for this phenomenon and we batted around a bunch of things. And I think it was me that came up with this idea of calling it the staffing surge. I'd gotten that name from the military surge in the Middle East that had gone on earlier this century, so. Yeah, that's really fascinating to think about that. And it just shows how much, really looking at the whole you know ecosystem of education, how many different ways that, one, the funding flows, two, how choice works, and three, determining what really a school looks like. What should the you know student-teacher ratio be, if you will, student-staff ratio be? Not that anyone you know has the perfect answer on that by any means. Although there's plenty of research on it, uh, looking at <laughs> one or two classrooms. But the thing is, on that one specifically, the optimal class size is going to vary by teacher and by group of students. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly no one answer. But that's not what we do in this country, right? We have... Right you know, district-wide or even statewide class size limits, that's one size fits all. But again, what we do know is class sizes keep dropping, staffing keeps going up, you know, far and beyond what they need to meet student enrollment growth. Even when school districts decline in enrollment, they tend to have an increase in staffing. And what I found in actually the second staffing surge report I did for EdChoice, and I didn't expect this, Obviously, there's an opportunity cost when you spend a bunch of money on staff. But what I didn't know was one place where that opportunity cost showed itself was in teacher salaries. So teacher salaries have been stagnant for a couple decades. So we're putting more and more and more money into public schools, but it's not showing up in teachers' pockets. Your colleague, Marty Lucan, has shown that a lot of that goes to teacher pensions and other benefits, of course, but it's not showing up in their salaries. So I let them have the staffing surge from 1950 to 1992, which was massive. And so I just do this calculation that if we kept staffing ratios, if we kept class sizes the same, 
we kept the ratios of other staff to students the same. Teachers could get like fourteen, fifteen thousand dollar increases in compensation. So the opportunity cost is very large, and it really hits teachers in their pocketbook. I'm going to say that that is probably the perfect research finding to end our research conversation on. And I'd like to slightly pivot for a second. Ben, how do you feel about sci-fi choice? Are you a Star Wars or Star Trek, or is it one or the other? Get a little Battlestar Galactica in there. What is the best sci-fi specific movie? Okay, that's a great question for me, actually, because I would not consider myself a sci-fi person or a sci-fi junkie. When I was in high school, a lot of my friends would just read those sci-fi novels just incessantly. I think I read two. You know, I, I think I read 1984 and Animal Farm, you know, but they were reading all the Isaac Asimovs and et cetera. But I love what I consider good science fiction films. And I like a lot of the Star Wars films. I like the old Star Trek TV show. I like the old Battlestar Galactica TV show. Now, I might not like it now, but I did like it when I was a young boy. <laughs> I don't like some of the newer Star Trek stuff, but the most recent movies with Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto, those are awesome. <laughs> I really like those films. And a lot of people are down on the Star Wars since Disney bought them. I actually like a lot of those. Rogue One's a great film. I even like some of the last trilogy. I didn't like the Han Solo film. Like I don't think anyone did, but I like it. Yeah, it's entertaining. Okay, now to marry the two topics. How much would school choice be impacted if we could actually have instantaneous transportation, such <laughs> as in Star Trek? <laughs> well, the real answer is the public employees unions who are stopping choice would still stop it. They would just work harder to stop it. But in the states that did pass it, which I'm amazed, like this past year, how many states passed big school choice programs for the first time or big expansions in their existing school choice programs. West Virginia, New Hampshire, big expansion in Indiana, et cetera, big expansion in Florida. If we had, you know, instantaneous transportation, like the right from Star Trek and the transporter, school choice would be unbelievable. I still think school choice would be unbelievably great if we had universal full school choice. But it would be even that much better if we had instantaneous transportation. Yeah, it makes me think of, I just blanked, whether it's Bill and Ted or Back to the Future, where they're in like a futuristic classroom and the students all have headsets on. I know the scene you're talking about. Yeah. Now I'm not confident in my answer. I can't remember which one. Yeah, so I just hope that we don't turn into the metaverse, if you will, where people are like putting on their goggles to go to school. That will make me feel a little sad, a lot sad for humanity. Yeah, hopefully we just go to the instantaneous transportation route instead. That'd be better, because then you could go to school in Singapore. You could go to school in Russia. You go to school in Ireland, right? You go to school in you know, Argentina, anywhere you want. You'd have kids going to five different countries, one each one day a week, becoming multilingual before they're in third grade. Yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. fascinating thing to think about. Sure is. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for the conversation. And it's great to hear about some of the history and the backstory, especially meeting Robert for the first time. Well, thanks for having me, Drew. And you're a great interviewer. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Gracious as always.
Well, to our listeners, be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you choose to listen to them for more of our coverage of new school choice research, education reform policy chats, and more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back soon with more EdChoice Chats. Thank <laughs> you.